So let's pray, and we're going to get right into it. Father God, thank you for this day of celebration where we make special note of the fact that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive. And because he is alive, we have the promise of eternal life through him. We ask you to bless this time of study in your word. We ask you to feed our spirits, give us fresh insight and understanding. And Lord, we pray for anyone here today that may not be certain about their relationship with you, that that would be solidified today, that you would draw them to yourself, give them the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. Till the soil of their hearts, make that soil soft and receptive to the seed of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Good Friday's come and gone. And I talked to my buddy Paul up in Seattle, and we were in music ministry together many years ago. And uh, he said something about, did you guys have a crucifixion day service? And I said, crucifixion day? Oh, you mean Good Friday. Oh, yeah, 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 that's what I meant, Good Friday. He says, no, we, had, we didn't have one of those. And then my wife says, uh, why did they call it Good Friday? What was good about it? I said, well, it wasn't good for Jesus, but it was great for us. And so... It's Good Friday because that's the day Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross for our sins. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, remember he's up on the cross? He said that he was thirsty. They had previously tried to give him wine mixed with drugs, some kind of a narcotic to dull the pain, and he refused it. Jesus refused to in any way dull the pain that he suffered for us. Think about that. Most of us, I think, would probably take anything if the pain was bad enough, right? Not Jesus. But th at this point, just prior to him giving up his spirit, he received the sour wine, or some translations say wine vinegar. So have you ever tried to quench your thirst with wine vinegar? <laughs> Doesn't work too well, but that's all they had there. And then when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He didn't mean, I'm done, I'm toast. It is finished, mission accomplished. The word in the Greek is tetelestai. They found receipts for taxes and you know, papyrus that were written across them this single Greek word to telestai, which means paid in full. It is finished, paid in full. The price for our redemption from sin was paid in full by our Lord's death. Here's some multiple definitions attached to this word to telestai. To bring to a close, to finish, to end, past or finish, to perform, execute, complete, fulfill, so that the thing done corresponds to what has been said the order, the command. Jesus said, I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father in heaven. It was God's will, it was God's order, it was God's command that Jesus do this. With a special reference to the subject matter, to carry out the contents of a command. With reference also to the form, to do just as commanded and generally involving the notion of time. There was nothing random about Jesus' entry into this world, the virgin birth, the incarnation, exactly when it happened, where it happened, how it happened, everything precisely planned out by God, 
right up into Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection to perform the last act which completes a process, a process that started back in Genesis when God said that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent, that the serpent would bruise his heel, referring to the crucifixion, but he would bruise the serpent's head. When a head is crushed, it's all over, right? Jesus' heel was bruised, but you can't keep a God-man down. To accomplish, fulfill, to pay of tribute. Jesus paid that price, paid in full. Mission accomplished. But let's dig into that a little deeper. What does that mean? What was, is Jesus' mission? He says in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man, referring to himself, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What is he referring to? He's referring to the entire human race. The human race was lost when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were cast out of the garden. God created man to have a, an eternal love relationship with him. God created us to be his forever family. That was lost when man fell into sin. Jesus came to fix that. In Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, the human race. Luke 9.25, Jesus says, For what profit or benefit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? Somebody like a George Soros, a Bill Gates, a Jeff Bezos, a Klaus Schwab. Have you heard of all these people? They basically own the world. You know that, right? What does Jesus say? What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? There was even a TV series. I, I never watched it, but a TV series called Lost. They ought to do one called Found. <laughs> and make it all about being found by God. You hear people all the time say, oh, he found religion, he found God, he found Jesus. No, he didn't. God found him. Amen. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. God seeks us out because most of the time we don't know what we're looking for. Jesus laid out his mission in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. He gets up in the synagogue in Nazareth and begins to read from the book of Isaiah, remember? This was early on, beginning of his ministry. This is when they still let him into the synagogue. <laughs> and so I'm not going to read that whole passage, but the, the six things that he lays out there that describe his mission. One, he came to preach the gospel to the poor. Why the poor? Because, to be honest with you, the poor are more receptive to the things of God than anybody else. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because the more things we have, the less reliant we are upon God. We rely upon ourselves, our own resources. In fact, when you get enough stuff, like the guys I just mentioned, you think you are God. But there's more to it than that, because in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. What does that mean? Somebody who's poor in spirit is somebody who realizes and recognizes their spiritual poverty that they are desperately in need of God's help. 
Again, something that many times rich people struggle with. It's not impossible for a rich person to become a believer, but it is much more difficult. And we've seen many tragic ends for people who appear to have everything, but in the end had nothing because they didn't have God. They didn't have Jesus. Preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted. I'll tell you what, we probably have more brokenhearted people in this world today than we ever have. You're seeing the manifestation of it through all the weird, crazy things that are happening in our world today. When your heart is broken and you don't know how to get it fixed, it leads to all kinds of stuff. There's not a day goes by, I don't think, that I think about this, talk about it with my wife, the level of insanity that exists in this world today. My wife and I, we talked about King Saul. His sinfulness, his rebellion against God literally drove him crazy. I've said many times, you've heard me say this, sin will make you stupid, but you know what? It does more than that. It makes you crazy. When you reject the truth, when you refuse to receive and acknowledge the truth, you literally lose your mind. And you're seeing people all around us right now that have lost their minds. You know what I'm talking about. I'm going to try to restrain myself today. <laughs> but you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> to heal the brokenhearted. That's good news. That's the gospel. The broken heart can be healed. But only by God. Not by drugs. Not by alcohol. Not by any of the other things we try to use. Those, none of those things will heal a broken heart. Preach deliverance to the captives. Again, whew, those that are captive to sin. Those that are captive to the enemy, to the devil. We're told that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Satan seeks to establish strongholds in people's lives. A stronghold is not something that's easily overcome, but it can be overcome by the blood of the Lamb. He came to preach deliverance to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. And again, there are people who are physically blind who see more than most people ever will. God heals our spiritual blindness, our emotional blindness, our mental blindness. Jesus said, hey, if you're right eye offends you, pluck it out. Better to enter kingdom with, of God with one eye than to go to hell with two. The greatest healing of blindness is when he opens our spiritual eyes that we may see the truth. I've shared before my experience as a, as a young believer receiving Christ as a child, but really coming into a full understanding of what it meant to be sold out to God at around 17 years of age. And when I really, really sold out to him and committed to him, it was like the blinders had been lifted off of my eyes. Because even though I received Christ as a child, growing up as a child of the 60s, <laughs> peace, love, long hair, rock and roll, some things never change. <laughs> I was more on the liberal side of things, you know, staging Vietnam War protests and things like that, and going to love-ins at Encanto Park in Phoenix, Arizona. But the minute I really sold out to God, it's like the blinders were removed from my eyes. And I changed in an instant, overnight. Different mentality. I saw the way, things the way God sees them. 
The Bible says that when we receive Christ, we receive the mind of Christ. You know what's scary about that? When you think about the many people today who identify as believers in Jesus Christ, but they do things that Jesus wouldn't do, that Jesus wouldn't approve of, that Jesus wouldn't endorse, why would they do that if they have the mind of Christ? So then you've got to back up the bus and say, wait a minute, are you really a believer? Have you really been born again? Or are you self-deceived? There are many today who are self-deceived. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. Oh, I'm a believer, but I think abortion's okay. That's not the mind of Christ. I'm a believer, but I think gay marriage is okay. That's not the mind of Christ. But you're being intimidated, see? If you say those things, that's hate speech. You know, you're a terrorist. You're a domestic fundamentalist, right-wing, Bible-believing, Bible-thumping, Jesus-loving terrorist. Oh, not me. I'm, oh, I don't want to be that. I'm sorry. Okay, I give in. You're right. Abortion's okay. Gay marriage is okay. Oh, really? Jesus said, having put your hand to the plow, if you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. But that's the battle. That's the game the devil's playing, folks. He wants you to back up, back down, back off, compromise. You know what? Lack of compromise is what took Jesus to the cross. And he said, if any man come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Take up his cross. And are you willing to do that? Because right now, folks, right now, according to Tucker Carlson, who does profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ. The number one fastest growing religion in America is transgenderism, and it is militant, and we're coming close to the time when they will be able to justify killing Christians because we don't support their agenda. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Because Jesus was. Jesus did whatever it took, and that took him going to the cross for us. There's people all over the world dying for Jesus right now, you know that? It just hasn't come to America yet. And I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm not trying to scare you. I hope it doesn't happen. But there are more and more signs every day that it very well could. And we have to be ready. Because if you're not ready, if you're not rooted and grounded in the truth of God's Word and the reality of the risen Christ, then you could very easily give up, give in. Jesus said... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Indicating, not a lot. The Bible talks about a great falling away. You can't fall away from something you never had. So we get into that eternal perplexing puzzle. Once saved, always saved. Arminianism says you can lose it. Calvinism says you can't. God says, don't test me. Don't test me. If you don't want to know, just stay with me. You've heard me say this before. I've never met a backslidden Christian that was comfortable, that felt secure. Oh, I'm eternally secure in Jesus. You won't hear a backslidden Christian saying that. They're nervous. They're scared, and they should be. Anytime you begin to disobey God and walk away from God, and you claim to be a believer, you should be scared. There's only one person in the whole universe that knows your eternal destiny, your eternal destination, 
Guess who that is? God. As long as you stick with Him, you're good to go. Recovery of sight to the blind. I'm always telling you, pray for your loved ones, your friends, co-workers, whoever you're concerned about. God, please grant them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. Another thing you can pray, we talked about last week, pray that God will till the soil of their hearts, that that soil will not be hard, so that when the seed of God's word is placed upon that soil, it will sink in and bring forth fruit. You can also pray this, God, open their blinded eyes. I have a couple people in particular. I pray for God open their blinded eyes and their deafened ears that they might see and hear the truth. Good things to pray for the lost. Five, set at liberty them that are bruised, or in the NIV it says to release the oppressed. So there are those who are possessed. There are those who are oppressed. When you're possessed, you literally have demons living inside of you. I think there's a few of them running around. But there are many people who are oppressed, harassed. Jesus said, here comes the prince of this world, and he has no place in me. No place to grab on and take hold. There was nothing in Jesus that the devil could grab onto. The devil tried it. Remember? Matthew chapter 3. Took him up to a high place. Hey, since you're the son of God... Jump off here, the, the God will send his angels to lift you up, so forth. Jesus didn't buy into any of that. But folks, sometimes we do give the enemy places he can grab onto in our lives. We talked about those strongholds. Oppression, he came to bring relief, release to the oppressed. And there are many people in that situation. The good news, Jesus came to set you free. Then six, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Now is always the right time to receive Christ, to yield your life to Christ. God's favor was poured out upon the people when Jesus came into this world, and he continues to pour it out to this day. The bottom line, Jesus' mission was and is to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, his people, the Jews, but the Bible also tells us he didn't come just for the Jews. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His people, not just the Jews, but anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew, Gentile, red, yellow, black, white, you know the old Sunday school song, they are precious in his sight. All of this was accomplished by Jesus on the cross, and yet his mission, you could say it was twofold. One, to pay the price for our sins, which he did on the cross, but it didn't stop there. It couldn't stop there. It also had to involve conquering death. His death on the cross paid the price for our sins. It satisfied the wrath of God, Romans 3.25. Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Propitiation means satisfaction. Somebody needs to call Mick Jagger and tell him that. Because he can't get no. But he could. He could. If he would receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. 
It means satisfaction. Christ is the only offering that satisfied God concerning sin. Okay? The Old Testament sacrifices were just a foreshadowing. They were temporary. The blood of bulls and goats and calves and so forth, all it did was cover the sin. The blood of Christ removes it. 1 John 2.2 2. And he himself is the propitiation. There's that word again. It's a theological word. For our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Here's the deal. Though not all believe, we know that. In fact, the majority don't. But his payment is sufficient for all. Isn't that sad? His blood paid the price for every sin of every human being that's ever walked this planet, and yet the majority will not be able to take advantage of it. Isn't that sad? It should break our hearts. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the payment, the satisfaction for our sins. So, you could say the human race was still trapped in mortal, corruptible, perishable bodies. Genesis 2.17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's the one they ate from. They didn't die physically immediately. Adam lived to be almost a thousand years old. They died spiritually. There's where that spiritual blindness comes in. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. The pattern had been set. Once Adam and Eve fell into sin, it was handed down to every generation. That's where the uh, secular humanistic philosophy, oh, we're all born good, or oh, we're all born neutral. We're just a matter of our environment. You put a child in the right environment and he'll grow up really great, really nice. That's a load of hogwash. We're all born into sin. Sin comes naturally. It comes as naturally as breathing, eating, sleeping. I've said it before. The first word out of most kids' mouth is no. The second word is mine. And all sin, by the way, is rooted and grounded in selfishness. Kids know that from the get-go. They're great at it. And we're all good at it until we repent and come to faith in Christ. So it's great to be forgiven. Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for our sins. And that's wonderful. That's the first step. But then, if you're dead, it doesn't do you any good, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only... And this is where the people who say, well, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I don't even believe He rose from the dead, but He, he was a good teacher. Have you heard that one? He was a good teacher. He was a, a good man. Somebody whose example we could certainly follow in this life. But Paul says, if in this life only, in other words, if we only believe that Jesus can help us in the present, help me to be a better person, you know? If, you know, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Jesus isn't risen, 
Paul is saying that our faith is worthless. It's only because he is risen that our faith is powerful and dynamic and life-changing and eternal. So part two of mission accomplished is what we're celebrating today. Part one, he paid the price on the cross for our sins. Part two, he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Mission accomplished, part one. Verse four, He was buried and then He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He was buried. That's normal procedure for a dead guy, Right? He rose again the third day. That, now, that's not so normal. No one has done it before or since. Permanent. Now, you will argue, okay, we have several examples of people being raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus himself raised people from the dead, but he is the first one and the only one to be permanently resurrected for all eternity. All those other people died again. The good news, hey, you're raised from the dead, you're back. The bad news, you're going to die again. <laughs> Okay. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. John 10, 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. And there are others who would try to paint the whole crucifixion scenario, denying the resurrection, of course. They paint it as just a sad, tragic, unnecessary event. Jesus foolishly placed himself in that position where he would be crucified. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for myself. Of myself, I have power to lay it down. Do you remember there were other occasions in the Gospels where people tried to kill Jesus, but he just kind of disappeared. He kind of slipped away. You can't touch him unless he lets you, you see? This command I've received from my father to lay down his life and to take it up again. I have power to take it again. The big difference, folks, with Jesus' resurrection, he raised himself. Don't try this at home. <laughs> it won't work. But in so doing, he proved that he has absolute authority over death. Anyone who can raise themselves from the dead can certainly raise others. Would you agree? Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15, For since by man came death, by man, and the interesting thing now in my New King James Bible, the first word man is a small m, that's referring to Adam, but when you get to the second man, it's a big m. Jesus. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. The God-man, Jesus. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Folks, as in Adam all die. And I've said this before too, this whole thing about racism is a bunch of baloney. There's only one race, the human race. We're all from Adam. We all came from the same mother and father. Now, you might not like people who are different than you, and that's something you have to deal with between you and God, but this idea of being a racist, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. 
If you're a racist, that means you're against all human beings. That sounds like the devil to me. This is a universal spiritual truth. As in Adam, all die. Through fallen man, Adam, all are fallen, all are sinners, and all die. But even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. So here's a reciprocal, universal spiritual truth. You got the bad news, and as in Adam, all die, and then the good news, in Christ, all shall be made alive. I think it's wonderful to have that choice, don't you think? You can choose life. You've heard that expression, right? Choose life. You can choose life. You can choose God. You can choose Jesus Christ. God has given you a free will. You're able to choose, but you must choose. Because if you don't choose, you've chosen. You've chosen against. You ch Jesus said you're either for me or against me. Hello. Why is it that people don't like something so simple, so straightforward, so black and white? Oh, just make it gray. I love shades of gray. I love confusion. Really? Seems to be like the world we're living in today, doesn't it? Don't confuse me with the facts. Was it Joe Biden said, we choose facts over truth? Yeah. Oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> it's a far. Do you remember that? Oh, Lord Jesus, it's a far. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that, Joe. Facts over truth, huh? How does that work? All shall be made alive in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So if you've ever wondered, gee, I know I'm born again, I'm filled with the Spirit, I love God, He loves me. But why, why is my body falling apart? <laughs> because the fulfillment is at His coming. He's the first fruits. Means that there are more to come. More good news. It doesn't say He's the only fruits. He's the first fruits. It had never been done before because God had never been born as a man before. But now, mission accomplished. Sin has been vanquished and death has been conquered. Afterward, those who are Christ's at His coming. So when does your body stop falling apart? When He comes and you get a brand new one. Okay? In the meantime, you're just going to have to praise God for your salvation. Even as your body falls apart. <laughs> but it's temporary. So, Jesus is the first fruits. We are the second fruits. <laughs> We're already saved, but our new glorified, eternal, incorruptible, imperishable bodies, our resurrection will come when Jesus comes. And His resurrection is our Guarantee. 1 John 2.25, this is a promise that he has promised us. Warm, fuzzy feelings. A great life here and now on planet Earth with prosperity and health. No. Eternal life. This is the promise that he has promised us. Eternal life. That should be your focus. 
In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't promise you perfection in this life. He promised you a perfect eternal life when he returns. Dead men tell no tales and they don't make promises. So thank God Jesus is not dead. He's alive. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, writes Paul, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And I love it. That's the term in the New Testament for believers who have died. Death doesn't exist for the believer. Do you realize that? Think about that. Death does not exist for you if you're a born-again Christian. You simply fall asleep and wake up in the arms of Jesus. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And you've probably noticed this. I mean, it's not always like this, but most of the time, from what I've seen, true believers in Christ, when they lose a loved one, there is grief, there is mourning, but it's not that gut-wrenching, overwhelming... Have you seen that? Been to a memorial service or a funeral where people are inconsolable? Almost every time it's because they don't know God they have no hope. And Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of those who have no hope. The others who have no hope. No one could deny that death comes to every man and woman. And outside of Christ, folks, the human condition is a hopeless one. I wish more people could see that, realize that, understand that. I don't care how much you accomplish in this life. If you don't have Christ, you have no hope. No hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe, Paul says, but he's not doubting it or questioning it. He's saying, if, we, if you believe it, which Paul did, of course, obviously, all the apostles, that was the primary focus of their message when Jesus commissioned them to go out and preach the gospel to the whole world. The focal point of the message was the resurrection. If you don't believe he's risen, then you're no good to God or anybody else. Because that is the whole ball game. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it's a fact. But here's the deal. And I believe this is woven into what Paul is saying here. It is a fact, but you can choose to believe it or not to believe it. It's your choice. He is risen. The evidence is overwhelming. It's indisputable. People have tried for 2,000 years to disprove it and failed every time. But if you don't believe it, it does you no good. It's just like saying to somebody, hey man, Jesus is coming again. I don't believe it. Guess what? He's still going to come. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. The only difference is how his resurrection and second coming will affect you. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you've heard me say this before too. In eternity, there won't be any non-believers. Every knee will bow. In the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. Those who've already been buried will be raised, some to eternal life, some to eternal death but every knee shall bow. If you're going to have to believe anyway, do it now. 
Don't wait till you're dead and then it's no good. Because you are going to be a believer. When you see him, when you bow your knee to him, you will believe. But if you didn't believe in this life, it's hasta la vista, baby. It's true. Revelation 21, 27. There shall by no means enter it, the new Jerusalem, our eternal dwelling place, that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul said, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's what gets your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Did you believe? Not that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, the first hippie, whatever. You must believe that he is the one and only son of the living God who died on the cross for your sins and on the third day he rose from the dead. It's your choice. But if you choose not to believe, it doesn't change the fact, the reality of the matter. Jesus is risen. 1 Thessalonians four fifteen and 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord... Again, so we have those who say, well, I don't really think he's coming that soon, you know. There's going to be a lot of things happening. Just chill out, kick back, relax. He might not come for hundreds of years. If he waits hundreds of years, this planet won't exist. And we won't exist. The human race won't exist. There are already people committed and dedicated to that fact. Post-humanism, artificial intelligence, all that. Their goal is to get rid of us, to erase us, because we are the cancer of this planet. God thinks differently. God thinks so highly of us that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us. In spite of all of our sins, all our failings, all our weaknesses, God loves us. He's not out to destroy us. He's out to save us. We who are alive and remain until the coming... Paul thought that he might even be raptured, that he wouldn't taste physical death. As he got closer to the end, I think he realized that probably wasn't going to be the case. But those who, of us who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. The physical body is asleep. The spirit is eternal, goes to be with God in heaven. Paul said, I prefer to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Just a little nanosecond, microsecond to pull those immortal bodies together. But we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We shall be like him. The Lord himself will descend with a shout. What do you think you might shout? Wake up! <laughs> Let's roll! <laughs> The dead in Christ will rise first. So his first order of business, folks, talking about the fact that we're the second fruits, resurrecting our dead bodies, first order of business. And then we'll join those who are transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, those who are alive, Paul says, at his coming to meet him in the air. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now some people might think, man, that sounds pretty far-fetched. 
But when you think about all the different things people have embraced and what they believe in today, the alien entities and so forth, all the other weird stuff that people have believed and embraced, and the fact that we have eyewitnesses that saw Jesus rise up into heaven from the Mount of Olives after he was resurrected. These things are not difficult for God. We serve a mighty God, an awesome God, an infinite God, a God of miracles. Thus we shall ever be with the Lord. So there it is, mission accomplished, part two, eternal life. Part one, paying the price for our sins. Part two, imparting to us eternal life. But you know what, folks? You can't give somebody something that you yourself do not possess. Is that correct? If you don't have five bucks, you can't give Roland five bucks. <laughs> if you don't have Jesus in your heart, you can't give him to anybody else. Right? Therefore, if Jesus hadn't risen, he couldn't have given us eternal life, but he rose. He's the first fruits, and therefore he can and will impart to us our own resurrection from the dead. Verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, in light of these things, Paul says that I've just shared with you, comfort one another with these words. Again, if somebody doesn't know the Lord, it's hard to, you can't comfort them with those words. They have to believe first. But anything else is false comfort. Charles Ryrie said, the encouragement or comfort of the Christian's hope and resurrection is in sharp contrast to the hopelessness of the heathen in the face of death. There's many sources of false comfort in this world, are there not? Many. And as Americans, we've been able to access many of them. These false comforts that the world offers. But they're like a drug. They sedate us. They intoxicate us. We talked about that last week. And even believers, let's be honest, sometimes resort to false comfort. But our one true and only comfort is this. He is risen. And because he rose, we too will one day rise unto eternal life. 